Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. I am back after a two-week hiatus. For this show, I have one brand new movie to review for you. I also have two other movies that came out the weekend of July 22nd through July 24th, and two other movies that came out the weekend before that, the weekend of July 14th through July 16th. I have a lot of catching up to do, so let me get right to it. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is... DC League of Super Pets. That is the full name of the movie. It is an animated film through and through. It's all animation, no hybrid animation live action. And it is based on the DC Comics superhero team, the League of Super Pets, which was not actually made up for this movie, which I was actually kind of surprised to learn. The Legion of Super Pets, also known as the League of Super Pets, made their first appearance in an issue of Adventure Comics, which was a subsidiary of DC Comics, in February of 1962. In that comic book, you also had, in addition to a dog named Crypto, who in the Superman mythos came to Earth from Krypton with Jor-El, also known as Superman, in that pod, at the same time that Krypton was meeting its demise, the planet Krypton. But in the Legion of Super Pets comic book, there was also a super horse, there was also a super cat named Streamy, and a monkey that was known as Super Monkey. And I'm actually kind of glad they kept those characters out, especially the monkey, because I guess people put monkeys in animated and live-action movies because they assume that monkeys are funny, which is not necessarily the case. But in the DC League of Super Pets, we only have the dog Crypto, who is voiced by Dwayne the Rock Johnson. And Crypto the Super Dog and Superman have the same basic kind of powers. They can leap tall buildings in a single bound. They have x-ray vision. They can stop a stray bullet. Anything that Superman does, Super Dog can also do. It's just that... Superdog's a little bit more used to having those superpowers than Superman is. So, Crypto the Superdog and Superman in this movie, DC League of Super Pets, are inseparable best friends, sharing the same superpowers, as I said, and fighting crime side-by-side in Metropolis. However, Crypto must master his own powers for a rescue mission when Superman, as well as the rest of the Justice League, is kidnapped. And who are they kidnapped by? Well... Crypto comes across a a home full of misfits, stray animals, including one guinea pig named Lulu, who is voiced by Kate McKinnon. And Lulu gets her hand on some orange kryptonite, which is not harmful to uh, the super dog Crypto or Superman. And I should also mention that while... His role is minor here. Superman is voiced by John Krasinski. But Lulu, as well as the other misfit pets, get superpowers, which the pets that are well-intentioned don't quite know how to control. For example, there is a mutt by the name of Ace, who's voiced by Kevin Hart, who is basically invincible and impenetrable. He also has super strength. I, I believe he can fly, too. There's also a pig by the name of PB, who's voiced by Vanessa Bayer, who can be as large or as small as she wants to. There's an old turtle by the name of Merton, who's voiced by Natasha Lyonne, who is just as fast as The Flash, although she has very bad eyesight. And last but not least, there is a squirrel named Chip, who's voiced by Diego Luna, who has electrical powers. And these misfit pets... Ace, PB, Merton, and Chip know to use their powers for good for what they're worth. But Lulu, the guinea pig voiced by Kate McKinnon, wants to take over the world because she was actually the previous... um, Her owner was actually Lex Luthor, who in this movie is voiced by Mark Maron. 
So Lex Luthor is pretty much out of the picture here, strangely enough. And Lulu, who, like Lex Luthor, is bald, also has these superpowers that enable her to not only take over the world, but also imprison all the members of the Justice League. Not only Superman, but also Batman, voiced by Keanu Reeves. Wonder Woman, voiced by Jamila Jamil. Green Lantern, voiced by Dasha Polanco. Aquaman, voiced by Jermaine Clement, and The Flash, voiced by John Early. And after the monumental disappointment of the Justice League movie that came out in 2016, which was supposed to be a really big deal, reuniting all these live-action superheroes into one movie, the movie, or at least the first cut of it, was very, very underwhelming. But this film, even though the Justice League members are more side characters who need their who need these pets with superpowers to rescue them, are actually much better than the Justice League heroes in the Zack Snyder film. And also, this movie is fun, very similar to how the Minions movie, The Rise of Gru, the fifth Despicable Me movie is, but it's obvious that this is not just eye candy. The uh, the writers, Jared Stern and John Whittington, and Jared Stern is also the co-director of this movie along with Sam Levine, really inserted a lot of good pet humor into this film while also, to a certain extent, taking somewhat seriously the legion of fans of the DC movies and also very much like the live action Shazam movie actually having fun with some of these uh, DC superheroes. So DC League of Super Pets is a movie that I initially wrote off kind of like Minions the Rise of Gru as a film that is only for that only children will enjoy kind of like the DC Imagine X toys but also like the DC Imagine X toys it's harmless fun, and I think that if three to four-year-olds, maybe kids as young as two, are introduced to this film, they're going to like it, and it doesn't also insult the intelligence or the integrity of the comic book fans out there. There may be some diehard comic book fans who are older, like Kevin Smith's age, and maybe even in their 30s and 40s, who might dismiss this as fluff. And there are some fluff moments to it, but overall, I enjoyed it. I laughed a lot more than I thought I would, and DC League of Super Pets gets my rating of a knockout. Given the fact that the DC Extended Universe, a lot of the live-action movies, except for the ones that that were later, like, for example, the movie The Suicide Squad kind of squandered their potential. I do think the DC League of Super Pets takes place in another cinematic universe, but one that, unlike the DC Extended Universe, I would actually want to revisit. Added to the fact that maybe Kevin Hart might not have been the best choice for the voice of the mutt named Ace, but he actually worked pretty well, especially alongside Dwayne Johnson, with whom he's been in several movies before. And I found myself focusing actually more on the characters and less on the voice actors. And that's saying a lot considering the A-list talent that is behind some of these characters. But I enjoyed DC League of Super Pets a lot, and I'm actually looking forward to the sequel whenever that will come. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Nope. This is the latest directorial and writing effort from Jordan Peele, who previously brought us two 
bizarre movies, but also ones that were grounded in some kind of sociological truth. There was Get Out, which he debuted with in 2017, which was an excellent film. And he also followed that up with Us, which many people have said is not as good as Get Out. And it's hard to say because it is an entirely different movie, but I enjoyed Us immensely. And I do think it was snubbed for several Oscars, probably most notably Lupita Nyong'o for Best Actress, because she did a great job in her dual roles in that film. And Nope, unlike Get Out and Us, is really uncategorical. It's part horror, it's part suspense, it's part science fiction, but overall, it is a very, very weird movie. And as I left the film with my girlfriend, uh, when when we went to see it at the Belcourt Theater, both of us were walking out wondering, we didn't hate the movie, but... There were a lot of loose ends that didn't really seem to be tied by the end. And maybe I I don't hate the film, but I also can't say it was as good right now as Get Out or Us, films to which this movie will inevitably be compared. So to summarize this film is kind of doing a disservice to you because I do recommend you see it a little bit of a spoiler alert there, but I don't want to reveal too much because this movie and I give it full credit for this is an experience. And if you can see it on the big screen, I highly recommend you do it, but here's the plot in a nutshell. It's about the residents of a lonely gulch in England and inland California who bear witness to an uncanny and chilling discovery. And I really want to tell you what that chilling discovery is, but I can't because Words on Film has a self-enforced no-spoiler policy. And to tell you what this uncanny and chilling discovery is will may ruin the experience for you, but it's on the tip of my tongue, not because I forgot it, but because I really want to tell you what it is because I want to discuss what worked about this movie and what didn't. But anyway... The main gulch in this inland California small town, which looks kind of like Wyoming, but is actually located not too far away from California. It's run by a young man by the name of O.J. Haywood. What O.J. stands for, I don't exactly know. It could be Orenthal James, just like Mr. Simpson. But O.J. is played in this movie by Daniel Kaluuya, and he lives on this lonely ranch where he trains horses for movies. Uh, alongside his sister, Emerald, who's played by Kiki Palmer. And their father is Otis Hayward, Haywood Sr., who's played by my voice acting um, hero, or one of my voice acting heroes, Keith David. And Keith David makes a little more like a cameo, because in the very beginning of the movie, Otis Haywood Sr. dies. Now, normally I wouldn't give away that plot, but he dies from a very strange circumstance that is very paranormal. That's all I'm going to say about it, really. And while OJ and Emerald are trying to maintain what they contend is the the oldest black-owned horse ranch in Southern California... They are also leasing out their horses to a former child actor by the name of Ricky Jupe Park, who's played by Stephen Yoon, whom many people may remember from the first five or six seasons of The Walking Dead. And they also notice some strange phenomena, which is directly tied to the death of their father through those strange paranormal circumstances. And while they are setting up uh, camera equipment to sort of detail what this paranormal activity is. They also befriend the technician who sets up these cameras, whose name is Angel Torres, who's played by Brandon Peria. And the three of them working together, along with a a celebrated but very eccentric documentary filmmaker by the name of Antlers Holst, who's played by Michael Wincott, they begin to discover something stranger and stranger 
as the movie progresses. And there are moments where there are some very slow parts, and there are also some other even stranger moments that have nothing to do with this paranormal activity, at least not at first. And it's, it acclimates into what is a very strange but very unique movie experience. And while I can say I did not love Nope as much as I did uh, Jordan Peele's other films, Get Out and Us, I still stayed with this film because I absolutely admired its originality. I loved the acting talents of just about every actor in this film, especially Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer. As a matter of fact, I think Kiki Palmer is the best thing about this movie. I think in most other films, Kiki Palmer would be the best friend. And she certainly has played her share of the best friend. But in this film, I think she's more front and center. And this may be the film that puts her on the map and makes her a household name, which she deserves because she's been acting for over 20 years. But God, I loved her in this film. I also loved the cinematography of the film, the way that it not only had a lot of uh, panoramic views by way of drone cameras, but also some of the other continuous shots, particularly when the past of the child actor Ricky Park, played by Steven Yoon, is revealed, particularly when he was, as a kid, um, an, an actor on a sitcom where an animal act goes very, very wrong. But part of my disappointment of this film was the fact that the animal act here that goes really wrong is not quite tied into the bizarre paranormal activity that I just mentioned that I won't entirely give away. There are also some other things that don't really make sense. Like, for example, there are some people that succumb to this paranormal activity. In other words, they perish. And there are some people who don't. And why the certain people perish based on the rules of this film, I don't exactly know. I haven't quite figured that out yet. But just because I haven't figured that out doesn't mean I won't write this movie off. But I can't quite give it a knockout exactly right now. Maybe I will change my mind later. I certainly have changed my mind about other films, but I feel like there were loose ends of this film that could have been tied up better. Not to mention the climax of the film was somewhat disappointing. And there were also moments in this film where there are plot contrivances where I thought to myself, why would somebody set this kind of contraption up in this way? Or why would somebody die from this event that's going on, or how would they die this way or that way? I don't know. Nope has many unanswered questions, but I give it a high checkout. I give the movie Nope a high checkout because it's a movie that I will never forget. And it's a movie that I really admire, not to mention applaud, for its originality and for director and writer and producer Jordan Peele just going somewhere that I would not have expected him to go. And in a lot of ways, his cinematic ambitions remind me very much of Stanley Kubrick, particularly with 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is a film that I don't think anyone has really been able to figure out completely. And I think that Nope is one of those movies, but... I thought that the plot contrivances and also some motivations of some of the characters didn't quite make sense in the grand scheme of things. I don't know if I'll change my mind, but Nope is a film that while I didn't love it, I do admire it for being as unconventional as it is for a big Hollywood movie.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Marina. Marina is a film that has come out of Croatia, and it has won the distinctive Camera Deor Prize at the 2021 Cannes Film Festival. So not this past Cannes Film Festival, but the one before it. And just to give you an idea of what the Camera Deor is, it's an award that is not as old as the Cannes Film Festival, but the Cannes Film Festival has been giving this award out since 1978 to films that have come out literally all over the world. And not just any films, it's it's a, an award that goes to first films, and that is defined as the first feature film for a director for theatrical screening, whatever the format, fiction, documentary, or animation of 60 minutes or more in length by a director who has not made another film of 60 minutes or more in length and released theatrically. Now, directors who have previously made student thesis films or TV films, not to mention short films, can still compete in this category. And there, as I said, there are films from literally all over the world. Amongst the well-known American films have been Stranger Than Paradise from 1984, directed by Jim Jarmusch. And I'm only naming the American ones because if I named all the ones you might have heard of, we'd be here for a while. There was also a 1992 movie called Mac directed by John Turturro. Yes, that John Turturro, the actor. There's also Slam from 1998 directed by Mark Levin and also Me and You and Everyone We Know, which actually tied for the Camera Delore. That one was directed by Miranda July, and she won that award alongside The Forsaken Land, which is a film that came out of Sri Lanka, which was directed by Vimukthi Jaya Sundara. And I am so proud of myself for getting that name right on the first try. Also of note is the fact that the Camera Del Or was won by Steve McQueen, who became the fifth black man ever to be nominated for Best Director. But he wasn't nominated for Hunger, which came out in 2008. He was nominated for 12 Years a Slave, which came out in 2013. But enough about the Camera Del Or. What's important is that Marina, and the name Marina is Croatian for More Eel. And moray eels are a family of eels whose members are found worldwide. And they're eels that are actually hunted in this film. And the eels actually take on a significant metaphoric meaning as this film goes on, but not for the reasons that you might expect. But Marina is focusing on a young teenage girl who is played in this movie in a fantastic performance by Grasija Filipovic, who is also Croatian. And she decides to replace her controlling father with his wealthy foreign friend during a weekend trip to the Adriatic Sea. The young girl, Yulia, is not making the trip to the Adriatic Sea. She actually lives on a beautiful island in the Adriatic Sea with her very controlling father, whose name is Ante, who is played by Leon Lucheff. And I think that Leon Lucheff could have played this role very two-dimensionally, especially since he does some horrible things to his daughter, Julia, as well as his young wife, Nela, who's played by Danica Kerchik who is Serbian. She is from Yugoslavia, which is now Serbia. And the former friend of his, or actually more of a rekindled friend, is named is Javier, who's played by a veteran actor named Cliff Curtis, who is very familiar to a lot of Western audiences, even though he is actually a New Zealander. Um, and this movie is about Julia not only coming of age, but also trying to get off this island, not because it's not a beautiful island, which it most certainly is, but largely because of her father both being physically as well as emotionally abusive. And Gracia uh, Filipovic is amazing in this film. I have to kind of set my attraction for her side, not only because I have a girlfriend, but also because... She is 20 years old, and what that means is when I was a senior in high school, she was an infant. So I'm going to backpedal that as I tell you more about this film. 
This film not only tells an amazing story, but also has some amazing cinematography, as well as it also has some moments where the characters are underground, or rather, not underground, underwater, which is technically underground, but go along with me here, when they're swimming or they are hunting for these marinas, these... um, these moray eels, there is a very potent metaphor which you can extrapolate out of this film. But I don't want to give away what that is. As I said, uh, Words on Film has a no-spoiler policy, but there is one scene which involves this teenage girl, Yulia, trying to get out of a locked room, and she finds a way out, but it's a way that could potentially result in her dying. But the way she gets out actually involves one of these marinas. And it's, it's one of those scenes where the character is underwater and you find yourself holding your breath with her as she is underwater. And it's just, it's probably the climax of this film, but there's also one great panoramic shot at the very end, which had me staying through the credits up until the credits turned well, at least the scene itself turned black and the remaining credits rolled, which made me really love and appreciate this film. And also, while it is technically a 2021 film, I would love to see this film get more attention than just the Camera d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, which is already a prestigious award as it is. But Martin Scorsese executive produced this film and distributed it in the United States. And Martin Scorsese not only is a great film director, but he also has a great eye for future talent. And Marina is certainly no exception to that rule, which is why Marina gets my rating of a knockout. I saw this movie at the Belcourt Theater, and there were times where my breath was literally taken away at some of the, the cinematography, largely the underwater cinematography, but also the... The cinematography of this film is amazing. The acting by the four principal actors, especially Gracia Filipovic, Danica Kursik, Leon Lushev, and and Cliff Curtis, is great. They all play off each other really well. Their chemistry is palpable and believable. And overall, this is not only a great coming-of-age film, it's also a film that really makes you think and doesn't spoon-feed you its meaning. And I loved it, and I do think that just about anybody who sees it will love it, even though there are many scenes in this film that are that have subtitles because it takes place mainly in Croatia, or rather, there are people in it speak Croatian uh, throughout probably about 80% of the film. But I think regardless how much you hate reading the bottom of the film, somebody who is not accustomed to foreign films will also love and appreciate this film as well. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Where the Crawdads Sing. This film is out in theaters now, and it was released nationwide on July 14th, 2022, only in theaters, although it probably will be coming out on streaming shortly. It is based on a 2018 coming-of-age murder mystery novel by American author Delia Owens. And this is one of the films that actually, excuse me, this is one of the books that was originally added to Reese Witherspoon's Reese's Book Club. And by July of 2022, this month, 
The book has to date sold over 15 million copies, making it one of the best selling books of all time. So the film adaptation has a lot to live up to. And one rule about most books that are adapted into movies is that the movie is usually never as good as the book. Sadly, where the crawdad sings is not an exception to that rule. It's produced by Reese Witherspoon, directed by Olivia Newman. And Olivia Newman is a director who has brought us such uh, previous products, uh, projects as episodes of Chicago Fire and Chicago PD. She made her feature film debut directing the film First Match, which came out in 2018. And that is a Netflix original, which you might be able to see. I have not actually seen that film, but I would like to see it uh, eventually. But, and it's a film about wrestling, which I'm immediately, which immediately gets me. But Where the Crawdads Sing is a film that falls short of greatness for a number of reasons that I will reveal. But the plot of this movie, it's about a young woman, and the young woman's name is uh, Kaya. That that's not her actual name. Her her real name is Christina. How that's shortened to Kaya, I don't know, and the movie never really explains. But she is played in this movie by Daisy Edgar Jones in her very first lead in a film, and it's very risky to have an actress who is not particularly well known in a big film like this, but it's not completely unheard of either. But she is raising herself in the marshes of the the deep South, uh, specifically in uh, North Carolina. And she uh, becomes a suspect in the murder of a man with whom she was once involved romantically. So the movie cuts back and forth very much like the book does between the trial in which, uh, Kaya Clark finds herself a defendant and also her love triangle before the alleged murder that takes place between a young man by the name of Tate Walker, who's played by Taylor John Smith and the victim, no spoilers, Chase Andrews, who's played by Harris Dickinson. And the movie starts out by giving you a a sort of a rough idea of what Kaya Kaya Clark's life was like growing up. And as I was watching the film and watching Kaya Clark's life in the marshes of this North Carolina swamp, I immediately saw some movie cliches. For example, there is a subplot involving her abusive father who seems to just slap people at random and is grumpy for grumpy's sake. And you also see a lot of the other children in the Clark family move away, including Kaya's mother, without taking her children with her. And there's no explanation for why why she runs away without taking her children. That's just that's just bad. <laughs> I mean, it would be one thing if if she ran away to get her life together and eventually comes back to retrieve her children in the best way she knows how, but for her to just disappear probably doesn't speak very well for her as a mother either. But rather than focusing on the trials and tribulations of growing up with an abusive father in dirt poverty, the movie kind of focuses a little bit too much on the love triangle and also spends way too much time, I think, building up to the ultimate death that takes place. I'm not going to tell you whether or not it is a murder, but I felt like the movie was 80% building up to that and also 20% the trial and the aftermath, when I really think that it probably should have been 40% building up to what happens as well as 60% of the trial itself, especially when Kaya is represented by a kindly Southern lawyer named Tom Milton, who's played in this movie by David Strathairn who is an excellent actor who's probably best known for his role as Edward R. Murrow in Good Night and Good Luck. But he's played several other great roles before Good Night and Good Luck and after. And he's very good in this. 
the other problem I had with this film was the fact that the character Kaya Clark is supposed to be born and raised in the bayou. Yet when you see her going around in the bayou, she looks like she's wearing makeup and her hair is her long brown hair is nearly perfect, which reduces probably the quality of this film down to the level of a Hallmark or a Lifetime film. And Hallmark and Lifetime films are good for what they are. They certainly have a following and people like them for being guilty pleasures. And that is fine. But my problem is that a film that should be, that is released in theaters and is based on a best-selling book that people probably loved, and I would certainly love to read it, should probably focus more on the realities of a person who lives dirt poor in a swamp and really show what they might actually look like. I'm not saying they need to look like the Hicks and deliverance, but they definitely don't look as beautiful as uh, Daisy Edgar Jones actually is. And there is a way to de-glamorize a woman while making her still physically attractive or appealing, but the movie doesn't quite seem to do that. So it is very uneven. It also seems to be particularly unrealistic when it comes to showing people who, who choose to live in a remote rural area and to them, the nearest town as small as it may be, might as well be Manhattan. I think there is a way to do that without necessarily making it as, glamorous in this film as it was. So where the crawdads sing is a movie that is certainly very evidently Oscar bait. I hope Oscar doesn't take the bait because where the crawdads sing the cinematic adaptation is in my opinion, a strikeout. It has moments where it could be really excellent. There are certainly some good acting jobs here. And I think that Daisy Edgar Jones is certainly an actress to watch and there are also some other supporting performances by the likes of Michael Hyatt and Sterling Macer Jr., who I didn't uh, reveal previously, who are worth watching. But overall, Where the Crawdads Sing is evidently unrealistic, and it also goes into soap opera mode when it could have gone into a compelling courtroom while also making the love story in it, especially the love triangle, very appealing, but unfortunately it doesn't really do that. So it's not one of my favorite films of this year. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Let me just say before I get into my final film that I'll be reviewing for you for this show that 2022 has so far been an exceptionally phenomenal year for animated films. It has. It's not to say that every single animated film that's come out this year has been excellent, that's certainly not true. I didn't like Minions, The Rise of Gru, and I also thought Lightyear, for several other reasons, could have been a better film. But for those films that fell short, there have been some other animated films that have really excelled. For example, Turning Red, the other Disney Pixar film that came out this year, was excellent. Beavis and Butthead Do the Universe was surprisingly good. The Sea Beast was a pleasant surprise. Apollo Ten and a Half was an amazing uh, rotoscoped animated film and pause of fury. The legend of Hank would probably go lower than minions, the rise of Gru, and certainly doesn't join the roster of excellent animated films. And I didn't expect it to either. It's a film that I expected to be a ripoff of, uh, Kung Fu Panda, but it actually turns out being 
a loose adaptation of the 1974 Mel Brooks classic film, Blazing Saddles. Now, Blazing Saddles is a hilarious film that I've probably seen about 10 to 15 times, and it still doesn't get any less funny. It's a film that, for several reasons, would not be made today, but even if it could, it's not a film you would remake. So no one asked for Blazing Saddles to be remade, and also nobody asked for an animated Blazing Saddles remake, but lo and behold, that's what we have here. And even though Mel Brooks, who directed and co-starred in Blazing Saddles, provides the voice of a character here, it still doesn't add any credibility to Paws of Fury, The Legend of Hank. And I started the segment off by mentioning the other films that came out this year, the other animated films that came out this year that fell short of greatness, like Lightyear and Minions The Rise of Gru. While I didn't hate those other two films, I did say that they probably would have been more beneficial to have been released on streaming platforms instead of being released in theaters. And Pause of Fury also did not are of less quality than Lightyear and Minions The Rise of Gru, which is why I'm very surprised this film was released in theaters because, truth be told, it wasn't it wasn't very good. And I'm not just talking about the animation or its knockoff of plot of Blazing Saddles. Well, none of the racist humor of Blazing Saddles is in this film, and I love the racist humor of Blazing Saddles, particularly because not because it's it's racist in the way of jokes about minorities it's it's great in the way that it shows the ignorance of racism and how we can really laugh at that at the ridiculousness of not only racism itself but the people the idiots who are racist but that context of blazing saddles is ripped from this movie where there is a dog named Hank who is put in cat prison and is released to become the sheriff of a town full of cats that wants to be ripped down by a scheming cat by the name of uh, Ika Chu, who's played by Ricky Gervais. And his name, Ika Chu, sounds kind of like Pikachu. Do they have any um, connection to Pokemon? No, they don't. I, I don't even exactly know why. Maybe Ikachu is a Somali term, as Ricky Gervais is the voice of a Somali cat. And I did say before that Ricky Gervais and children's films don't mix. And I primarily place that judgment on the fact that Ricky Gervais was in Muppets Most Wanted, and he was one of the primary reasons that Muppets Most Wanted fell short of greatness, because he looked bored and he looked like he didn't want to really be in the film. Here, I don't, I don't exactly say he phones it in, but he doesn't really add anything to it either. But there is an impressive roster of talent here, of voice talent. And unfortunately, even though this is a film about kung fu, a lot of the voice actors who are Asian are pushed to the side here. For example, George Taikei and Michelle Yeoh are voices in this film, but they play very, very minor characters. And I'm not necessarily saying that every movie about Kung Fu, especially every animated movie has to have Asian characters in it, or has to have all Asian actors as the voices of characters. At least they're not pulling what Mickey Rooney did in breakfast at Tiffany's. But I would imagine that movies like this would owe it to Asian actors to have their voices more prominently in some of these films at least with a better or bigger characters. But instead you have Michael Sarah as the voice of Hank, the bumbling beagle who is the dog who protects the, the, the cat town from the raging band of other cats who try to inherit it. Samuel L. Jackson plays Jimbo, who is kind of who is a tuxedo cat sensei, who rather than being like Gene Wilder in Blazing Saddles, is a little bit more like Dustin Hoffman's character in uh, the Kung Fu Panda movies. He knows a lot about karate and kung fu, but he is very jaded. And even with a dynamic voice actor like Samuel L. Jackson, this movie really just disappointed me. 
And there, there were some moments where I chuckled, but most of them were at Mel Brooks's character, Toshi, who is a shogun and also a British show hair. And this movie didn't have enough Mel Brooks, and that's really just disappointing. So Pause of Fury, The Legend of Hank is a film that is not very well animated. It rips its story from Blazing Saddles. It does give the writers of Blazing Saddles, including Mel Brooks and Richard Pryor, screenwriting credits, to which I give it credit, but nobody asked for an animated version of Blazing Saddles, and nobody asked for a movie this cheap, as well as a film about an Asian martial art where the Asian voice actors are basically given cameos. And I feel like this movie just didn't really respect basically Asian American culture either, which is why it was kind of that sort of animated whitewash, which is unfortunately very disappointing, I should say. So pause of fury. The legend of Hank gets my rating of a flunk out. It could have been more original just by not being a movie about anthropomorphic animals practicing Kung Fu, because even if you're not familiar with blazing saddles, you'll immediately make the comparison to Kung Fu Panda. And as predicted, this movie just doesn't live up to that comparison or to any comparison of any better animated film that came out this year. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I have reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters, because in theaters is all I have time for this week, for the weekend of August 5th through August 7th, 2022. And all the films that I am about to tell you are subject to being released in theaters on August 5th. The first movie that is probably going to be the biggest movie of this coming weekend is a movie that's called Bullet Train. And Bullet Train has an all-star cast. Actually, Brad Pitt is in this movie, but he is given second billing. Sandra Bullock is also in this movie. She's given fourth billing. Hmm. And interestingly enough, the top billing in this film is Joey King, who previously starred in the very impressive Hulu action film The Princess. But this movie, which is called Bullet Train, is about five assassins aboard a fast-moving bullet train who find out their missions have something in common. So I guess these five assassins are on separate missions. And yeah, Joey King, for her to not be a household name yet, although she is a fine actress in several ways, but for her to get billing over Brad Pitt and Sandra Bullock is a very big risk, especially since she's not nearly as well known as those two actors, those two Academy Award winning actors, no less. But she also stars alongside Karen Fukuhara, Zazie Beetz, and Aaron Taylor Johnson. I presume that Zazie Beetz and Aaron Taylor Johnson are the other two assassins in this film. I don't entirely know yet, but I will see this film and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. I want to tell you more about the director, but I only have so much time, so I will keep going down the list. So in addition to Bullet Train, another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on August 5th, at least in the United States and Canada, is a movie that's called Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. And is this a film about zombies? Well, I'll tell you. That would be a good uh, film about zombies, but this is a movie about a group of rich 20-somethings, Gen Z, who are planning a hurricane party at a remote family mansion, presumably in the South. And a party game turns deadly in this fresh and funny look at backstabbing, fake friends, and one party gone very, very wrong. 
This movie, uh, the star of the film is Amanda Stenberg. And if I didn't have a girlfriend and I was in my 20s, I would have a an aching crush on Amanda Stenberg. Not only is she jaw-droppingly beautiful, but she also is very down-to-earth and she is a very, very good actress. The movie also co-stars Maria Bakalova, Rachel Senat, Chase Swee Wonders, and Pete Davidson. Pete Davidson is one of those comic actors who I think is particularly overrated, but I give him a chance with every movie in which he's acting, and he just left left Saturday Night Live, so who knows? He may impress me in future movie and TV projects. He may, but I will give Bodies, Bodies, Bodies a chance, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show if I see it. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on August 5th, and let me repeat that, it's coming out on August 5th. The reason I'm repeating is because the movie is called, and this is true, Easter Sunday. Yeah, a movie called Easter Sunday is coming out in a weekend in August. You would think that this would have come out four months ago, like around Easter, right? But anyway, uh, putting that bias aside... This is set around a family gathering to celebrate, you guessed it, Easter Sunday, and the comedy is based on Joe Coy's life experience and stand-up comedy. Joe Coy himself is the star of this film, and the director of the film is Jay Chandrasekhar, who is an Indian American who is best known for his movies with Broken Lizard, some of which he has directed or co-directed, and some that he has not. He has, um, he made his debut back in 1996 when he directed Puddle Cruiser and he received more accolades in 2001 when he directed Super Troopers. That's all the extent of Jay Chandra Sekhar's repertoire that I'm going to tell you right now. But Easter Sunday is a film that I will probably more likely see than Bodies, 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 but I will probably see Bullet Train. Um, that will probably be my top priority, but Easter Sunday is a film I will likely see also, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And the final film that is subject to being released in theaters on August 5th is a movie that's called I Love My Dad. This is a film about a hopelessly estranged father who catfishes his son in an attempt to reconnect. Uh, this, this sounds very dangerous and it is an original film that was written by and directed by James Morosini. I'm not going to give you his entire repertoire, but he co-stars in this film as the estranged son alongside Patton Oswald playing his father. I will see anything with Patton Oswald in it because Patton Oswald is not only one of my favorite stand-up comedians who's living today, as well as probably one of my favorite comedians of all time, but I don't think he's been in a bad film. Actually, I take that back. He has been in a few bad films. The one that comes to mind is the movie The Circle, in which he was miscast. But I give him a chance because he is definitely one of those actors who takes risks and puts it out there. And I think he takes that, he gets that risk-taking from his stand-up comedy, which is certainly subversive and also very intriguing as well. So in addition to Pat Oswald and James Morosini starring in this film, there are also some other noteworthy actors as well as, I mean, noteworthy actors, including Lil Rel Howery and Rachel Dratched, amongst other people. So you got a ragtag team of misfits in this film, I should say. Um, and I hope they don't take this the wrong way if they hear that. But if I see I Love My Dad in theaters, I'll give it my best shot to see it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.